Amen. Hey, I got something for the boys and girls if they'll come by here today. I tell you, all of y'all come up on this side and then walk across the stage like you're getting ready for your high school graduation and you can go down that side and go back to your seats. Come on, you gotta grab a bag out of here. Hurry, hurry, hurry. You're getting into my preaching time and they're gonna be mad at me, not you about that. So come on, move your little feet. Come on, let's go. It's food. I brought lunch for you guys today. Check it out. Everybody grab one and go. They're all the same. They're all the same. There you go. You're very welcome. Thank you for saying thank you, Omri. Omi, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you all. Very good manners. I hear you. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You don't know what, maybe you, you might not want to thank me <laughs> because it's two fish sticks and five saltines. <laughs> I splurged too, y'all. I went to Walmart and I went to that frozen section and these, fish, these are the fancy fish sticks. They're so fancy, they come in that cardboard, cardboard box. They're not even wrapped in plastic. Y'all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you can't keep great value in that name if you're gonna be using all that plastic now. Mom, I did cook them. They've been cooked, but they've been in the refrigerator overnight. So do with that what you want. I almost bought mozzarella sticks and told them it was fish sticks. <laughs> because I thought that would be funny, you know? I didn't do that. So that's where we are, Matthew 14. We've come to that very familiar story of Jesus feeding 5,000. It was actually 5,000 men, more people, grand total than that. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In the book of John, in fact, this story's in all four gospels. John tells us it was a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes. You know, and we're all familiar with that story, but I think... Sometimes, especially if you've been in church for some length of time, you've been familiar with the Bible for some length of time, I think we kind of run the risk of getting maybe too familiar with some things in the Bible and they sort of lose their significance and they lose their intended meaning for us. And so I thought for us to really kind of understand, I think, what Matthew wants us to get out of this portion of God's word today, that maybe it would be helpful if we kind of zoomed out and took a bigger view of all four of the gospel writers because all four gospel writers have a different theme, have a different focus in the way they go writing about their gospel story. Let me start with Mark. Mark writes to present to us that Jesus is the son of suffering. It's Mark who says that Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. If you read the Gospel of Mark, Mark is way more focused on what Jesus is doing than on what Jesus is saying. He moves rapidly, almost like a servant moves from task to task. And then you come to Luke. Luke is presenting Jesus as Jesus, the Son of Man. Luke is a doctor. Luke is a physician. And Luke seems to have a, a, a bit of a fascination with the fact that this is God in flesh, that he's not only fully God, but he's also fully man. And Luke is quick to point out some things about the humanity of Jesus that other gospel writers might not have put the spotlight on. And then the gospel of John. 
John clearly is writing to show us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Son of God. He opens that up in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down to verse 14 of that, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. John finishes up uh, in chapter 20 by saying, these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. So that's Mark, son of suffering, Luke, son of man, John, son of God, and Matthew, where we've been today now for 39 weeks, Matthew is writing to show us that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the promised king of the Jews. He wants us to see that. He's reminding us in his gospel that the king has come and he is ushering in his kingdom in this world. That's the drumbeat of Matthew. The king has come and this is his kingdom and this is what the king is like and this is what his kingdom is like and this is what kingdom people in his kingdom are like. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. Okay, now that we're familiar with and reminded what the big picture of Matthew is, in comparison to the other three gospel writers. Let's zoom back down to chapters 13 and 14 of Matthew where we've been for the last four weeks. Let me remind you, we were hearing in 13 parables of Jesus. Those parables kind of focused on this. You're, you're gonna plant the word of God in this world, but most of that's gonna be rejected. Most of that's gonna fall on soil that's not gonna receive God's word. He, he talked about how the weeds are gonna grow up there among the wheat. Also, in that chapter, we saw Jesus being rejected in his very own hometown. And then last week we saw uh, Jesus, his best man, John the Baptist, being unjustly and senselessly executed. And we left off last week, if you were here, you remember Jesus was sitting in his sorrow. He was gut-punched with the loss of John the Baptist. He had retreated to a desolate place to be alone with his father. But he's not gonna stay there very long. You're gonna see that here in just a moment. But before we get there, I wanna say this. Are you seeing the theme in Matthew 13 and 14? There's a theme that's really emerging here, and it's this. The, the king and his kingdom have come into this world, but they are taking on all kinds of rejection, taking on all kinds of pushback, taking on all kinds of gut punches, and this was obvious last week. Last week's message about gut punches landed on a lot of people in this room. It landed on a lot of people outside this room. It's been a long time since I got that many text messages and phone calls and emails from people throughout the week. It resonated with us. We can all relate to gut punches because life is hard oftentimes. Life is oftentimes cruel. It's mean. Just ask my good friend Rocky Balboa. I'm a Rocky fan from way back. Carl Weathers passed away this week who played Apollo Creed. So I thought, man, I gotta drop in a Rocky Balboa quote today in the sermon. In, in the movie Rocky Balboa, not one, two, three, four, five, but Rocky Balboa, he's on the street in a scene with his son and it's kind of a famous speech that he has there, and this is what he says, let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place. I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. 
You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you get hit and keep moving forward. How about that? Pretty good, huh? Rocky's right. The world's not all sunshine and rainbows. It is mean. It is nasty. It will, from time to time, gut punch you and knock you to your knees. And that statement, I think, is even more true if you're a citizen of a different kingdom in this world called the kingdom of heaven. If you're following Jesus today, the world, your own flesh, and the devil himself are going to, at times, beat you to your knees. Last week's message struck a chord with so many of us because many of us, we're on our knees. We're dealing with a gut punch or multiple gut punches. And last week, we saw from God's word what Jesus did when he was gut punched. We saw what Jesus did when he was in deep pain. And we sat with Jesus last week in his grief and in his sorrow because he is so good and faithful, right, to sit with us in ours. Here's the thing. That kind of hurt, that kind of grief, and that kind of sorrow doesn't just go away. Doesn't work that way. But God has a way sometimes of interrupting us in the middle of the gut punch pain, in the middle of the hurt, in the middle of the sorrow. And that's exactly what's about to happen to Jesus in John chapter 14. He's still reeling from that gut punch, but the Holy Spirit just keeps moving Matthew's pen. Matthew continues to write under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And what happens next is not what you would expect from a man fresh on the heels of being rejected by his hometown. It's not what you'd expect from a man who's grieving and sorrowing because his best man has just been brutally murdered. But here's what happens in Jesus' life next. And we need to pay attention Because he's not only our savior, praise God that he is, but he's not only our savior, let me remind you, he's our example. He's our example. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, the Bible says, now when Jesus heard this, we saw this verse last week, he heard about John the Baptist being murdered. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and watch this, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the day's now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. 
Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now question, this miracle is in all four gospel writers but why does Matthew put it right here? What does it have to do with those parables about rejection? What does it have to do with Jesus being rejected in his own hometown? What does it have to do with Jesus reeling from this gut punch about what's happened to John the Baptist? I think when you zoom out and you're reminding yourself of the greater purpose of Matthew's gospel, the greater context of Matthew's gospel, you begin to understand that this is why he puts this miracle here. It's this. This is how kingdom people respond when they're rejected. This is how kingdom people respond when they're pushed back upon. This is how kingdom people respond when they're gut punched. Jesus has been rejected He's been pushed back on. He's been gut punched. And this is what he does next. In the pain and in the sorrow, he rose up. Are you hear, are you hear me? In the pain and in the sorrow, he rose up to show extravagant hospitality. Extravagant hospitality, write this down. Kingdom of God people are never more like our king. Kingdom of God people are never more like our king than when we respond to the hurt and the hate in this world with extravagant hospitality. We are never more like King Jesus than when we respond to the hurt and the hate in this world with extravagant hospitality. Jesus saw, he saw these thousands of people. And you know what blows my mind, Miss Shirley? He knew what was in every single one of their hearts. And just like the parable of the soils, I would imagine most of their hearts didn't have pure motivations. Some did, most probably didn't. Some just wanted to see the show. They just wanted to be entertained. Some were just suffering from a big case of FOMO, right? They just didn't want to miss out on what was going to happen next. But Jesus saw them and he chose to love them anyway. The Bible says he showed them compassion. And then he goes to work. Hurting, grieving, he rises up and he goes to work to show them an extravagant hospitality that they will never forget. Listen, people are gonna forget what you say, but they'll never forget how you make them feel. Kingdom of heaven people, we need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that. This is the way of Jesus. He says incredible things, and Matthew's the gospel writer that gives us more of that than anybody else. But Matthew also doesn't want you to miss this. He made people feel something. They're gonna forget what you and I say, but they'll remember how we make them feel. He had them sit down, the Bible says, in the grass. I don't know if you've been over there. There's not a lot of grass. 
I don't know if this just wants another part of the miracle here, that he just goes, Zoysia, bam! <laughs> Tell me he couldn't do it, right? 20,000 people finding some grassy place to sit over there is not easy to do. But somehow there's this grassy area and he sits all the people down. It would not surprise me if he didn't just make it even supernaturally soft and lush because that's just how good he is. That's how kind and hospitable Jesus is. And then he takes what amounted to a little boy's Lunchable and he feeds all these people. It was just 5,000 men that got counted. Somebody went, we need to count all these people because we're gonna probably write this down. This is, this is gonna be one to remember. And somebody went, it's too many. Well, just count the guys. So then there's probably that many women and maybe two for one on the children. So maybe 20,000 people easily total. And he fed them all. Not only that, but the Bible's clear. He fed them all until they could not eat anymore. They were full. And I'm sure many of them stuffed their pockets and their purses because they got to travel home and the kids are going to get whiny in the backseat of the donkey and nobody's invented fast food yet, right? And there was plenty of food to take. Every belly was full and every doggy bag was full. And the Bible says that the disciples each took a basket and they went around and they picked up everything that was left. That is extravagant hospitality from a hurting person. And this is a big part of what the kingdom of heaven should be like for me and you. It's a big part of the way you and I as kingdom people ought to be living our lives. You know why? Because that's our king there. That's how he lives. He lived then. That's how he lives now. He is still full of and showing and displaying extravagant hospitality this whole message is a message of extravagant hospitality. The gospel itself is the pinnacle story of what extravagant hospitality is. Think about it. There is no greater example of extravagant hospitality than this, that a holy God robed his only son in flesh, sent him into this world to be born of a virgin, to walk for 33 and a half years on this sin-infested planet, to die as the Lamb of God, as a substitute in your place and my place on the cross so that we might be saved from sin, adopted by the Father, have a seat at his table in heaven forever with the Lord. Has there ever been a story of more extravagant hospitality than the gospel message. This is our key. Write it down. The gospel is extravagant hospitality. And here's the deal, church. How many of you have received that extravagant hospitality? Just raise your hands. I'm saved, amen. I've received that extravagant hospitality. Keep your hand up. Now we're supposed to give it. The same extravagant hospitality we have received from the one who suffered innumerable gut punches as he hung on the cross. The same one we have received that extravagant hospitality from is the same one now that we're called to honor by showing that same extravagant hospitality in and through our lives. Not just when it's all sunshine and rainbows. 
That's easy. That's not extravagant hospitality when the wind's at our back. But when we're laying busted up and bloodied on the ground, beat down to our knees by this world and our own flesh and the devil, that's when we get in the footsteps of Jesus and we rise up in our pain and we rise up in our hurt and we rise up in our gut punch and we say, I wanna be like you in this moment, Jesus. I wanna show your compassion. I wanna show your kindness. I wanna show your tenderness. I wanna show your extravagant hospitality because this is when it counts. The miracle of feeding these 20,000 people is, is, is an example to us. It's not just a story to go, wow, he's amazing. No, it's a challenge. It's King Jesus throwing down the gauntlet and going, this is how we roll in my kingdom. Because you're not gonna miss out on the gut punches. And nobody's questioning how bad it hurts. But at some point, you gotta decide, am I gonna, am I gonna, dwell here or am I gonna ask the Lord to give me strength to rise up like Jesus rose up, to live like Jesus lives? Hatred. Hatred had cost Jesus the life of John the Baptist, but he returned hatred with hospitality. Kingdom people, we don't return hurt with hurt. We don't return hatred with hatred. That's not the path King Jesus blazed. We return hate and hurt with extravagant hospitality. Kingdom people, church, they're supposed to do crazy outlandish things. Like, like buy 72 acres and build a park in a community that's never had a park. So anybody, and I mean anybody, can come over there and treat it like it's their own. Because kingdom people know it's the Lord's. And if it's the Lord's, he's gonna handle it and he's gonna take care of it. And I wish you could be around here when we get some of these nice days like we've seen every now and then here lately. It's covered up, man. You guys made a decision as a church. Hey, we want to follow King Jesus and, and we wanna find ways to show extravagant hospitality. So let's not sit here today and say, well, it can't be done. It has been done. It's being done. And I'm still here because I think we're just getting started in getting it done. The tears were flowing last Sunday because gut punches abound, no doubt about that. But Rocky is right. It's not how hard you hit. It's how hard you get hit and keep going. And we've got to keep going. We gotta keep going to this hurting and this mad and this mean old world, loving them with the love of Jesus. Do you, do you know why, by the way, it seems like, I don't know, do you agree with me? People have just gotten meaner. The world's gotten meaner here lately. Have y'all noticed that? Mean, I'm talking about. If it feels that way, it's for good reason. I think it has gotten meaner. What, what, what's caused that? What's caused that escalation in meanness? January 1 of this year, I, my heart got wrapped up in a book by David Brooks, and, and, and he says this. He says, what's caused this rise in meanness in our society is an epidemic of blindness. Let me read some to you. He says, everybody has their eyes open, but nobody seems to be seeing each other. We're living in the middle of some sort of vast emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis. It's as if people across society have lost the ability to see and understand one another. 
thus producing a culture that can be brutalizing and isolating. And he goes on to say, there's judgment everywhere and understanding nowhere. I'd agree with that. Here's more from Brooks. He says, social disconnection warps the mind. When people feel, listen to this, when people feel unseen, they tend to shut down socially. People who are lonely and unseen become suspicious. They start to take offense where none is intended. They become afraid of the very thing they need the most, which is intimate contact with other humans. And they're buffeted by waves of self-loathing, self-doubt. After all, he says, it feels shameful to realize that you are apparently unworthy of other people's attention. Many people harden into their solitude. They create self-delusional worlds. It becomes a deceiving filter through which we see ourselves, others, and the whole world. It makes us more vulnerable to rejection and it heightens our general level of vigilance and insecurity in social situations. We see ourselves as others see us and when we feel invisible, we have a tendency to fall to pieces. And falling to pieces is what we're seeing happen to our fellow human beings in our society right now. Listen to this. In the last 20 years, 20 years, that's how long I've been a pastor here, suicide rates have risen 33%. In 2009, the percentage of teenagers like these up here on the front in 2009, the percentage of them who reported persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness was 26%. That was high then. Today, it's 44%. The number of Americans who say they have no close friends has quadrupled in just 30 years. 54% of Americans say that nobody knows them well. People are spending a lot of time isolated we, we think we're connecting, but we're not. We're isolated and alone. Just 10 years ago, 2014, a hiccup ago, right? Just 10 years ago, we spent an average of six and a half hours a week with friends. But now in our post-COVID world, we're spending on average two hours and 45 minutes a week with friends. That's a 58% decline in just 10 years. These are just the stats. But you and I, we see the consequences, the symptoms of this presented every single day, don't we? In multiple ways. There's a reason we saw the need to have a biblical counseling ministry at Grace Life. There's a reason we saw a need to have a recovery ministry at Grace Life. There's a reason that it's not only my phone that rings with these calls, my wife's phone. She's a counselor. At her school, there's a reason her phone rang late one night this week. Because another young person just struggling to see the purpose of living. See, when people think they're unseen, sadness sets in. And sadness often transforms into meanness. Listen to me. Because pain that does not get transformed is pain that gets transmitted. Let 
pain that does not get changed and transformed is pain that gets transmitted onto another person. The world is getting meaner because people are getting lonelier, sadder. Doesn't it feel to you like just more people are ticking time bombs these days than ever before? People are on edge. People who own restaurants are saying that never before have they had to be asking so many people to leave their establishment. People sitting down to eat, right? And we could talk about, well, it's hard to find good. I'm talking about people that are flipping their lids. And then, here's what's crazy, bragging about it. Boasting about it. I told them off, I went off on them, I blew them up. Going on our social media, even so-called followers of Jesus were doing the same thing. We wear it, we wear our meanness and our volatility today in our culture like a badge of honor. Like it's gonna get us respect or something. And we're just contaminating the water more. It's all we're doing. Nobody trusts anybody anymore. And this is sobering news. In a society where people don't trust one another, that's a society with a short lifespan. We won't be here long if we can't trust each other. Distrustful people assume that other people are out to get them. They exaggerate threats, they circle their wagons. And by the way, it's only gonna get way worse this year in 2024, because it's a political year. Well, every year is a political year, but we're voting on a president this year. And God help us. Same two guys running, looks like, or walking. I don't, I don't know if they can run for president anymore at this point, but. We're walking for president at this point. And the forecast, you know it like I do, the forecast calls for more division, more vitriol, more distrust. But I pray this time, church, that we can rise above it. We must rise above it. For such a time as this, the table is set for the kingdom of heaven to be a beautiful display in this world for who our king really is. And Jesus just showed us in Matthew 14 how to do it. It's time for us to show the world, Grace Life, it's time for us to really show the world the extravagant hospitality of King Jesus. Now you might think, well that's just impossible. That's just a dream. You might be thinking, but, but we're so small and we don't have much to work with. But, but, but he's the God, is he not, that turns nothing into something. Ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing came everything. That's the description of all creation, Genesis chapter one. So yeah, it may look like we don't have much, but what we have is more than enough. So let me quickly tell you in the last 10 minutes we have, let me tell you what we have when we step up to show the extravagant hospitality of Jesus. Three things that we have, write them down quickly, I'll talk quickly, but if you get hungry, still some child's fish sticks and crackers, we'll be all right. Number one, when we step up in this world to show the, the extravagant hospitality of Jesus, we have Jesus and his resources. He was right there with his disciples in the middle of this looming crisis, and let me remind you, he is right here with us. Today, just as he was there then, he is here now. 
in the middle of our own looming crisis. And when you have Jesus, Brad, you have all you need. We don't need anything else but Jesus. And I love that Jesus looked at the disciples, and you look at the text, Jesus looked at the disciples and he said to them, you do something. He looked at them and he said, you give them something to eat. I love that. He gave them the responsibility, but all they had to do was look to him for the resources. Church, he's given you and me the responsibility. And all we gotta do is look to him for the resources. He's looking at us today, church. He's looking at you, me, us, Grace Life. And he's saying, yeah, this world is, it's a mess. You do something about it. We've been saying around here for a while, no care, love. You gotta know somebody so you can care about somebody so you can love somebody. But we might need to put another word at the front of that, Bryant. Sorry, I'm just gonna mess up all our stuff, all right? But we might need to put the word see because before you know somebody, you gotta see somebody. And we're living in a society right now where people are struggling with feeling unseen, invisible, not valued, Sharing the resources of Jesus starts with seeing people. Look at verse 14. And when he went ashore, he, he what? He saw. Through tear-filled eyes that just moments earlier were grieving a gut punch of his best man. But in his own hurt, with tears in his eyes, he saw other people. Do you hear me hurting people here today? This is not round two. We all got gut punches. We're gonna cry and, and, and feel the pain. That's still there. I'm not questioning that. Not making light of that, but I'm telling you, the king, our king, the one we follow, with tears in his eyes from really from a gut punch, he rose up and he saw people. He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Listen, human beings have as much a need to be seen as they do to have food and water. You can't live for long without food and water, but I would say you're not gonna live for long either without being seen, without being known. There's nothing more cruel you can do to a human being than not see them. Nothing more cruel you can do to render them invisible or unimportant, that's the cruelest thing you can do to another human being, literally, literally. This last week, after that message, all the things that were said had the same theme, but one thing stood out afterwards. I was out in the concourse, and a lady came up to me, and she said, do you ever feel like you're wearing a cloak of invisibility? And I, I wasn't really paying great attention at first. And my response was, um, no, but I'd like to. But then I'm looking at her and I can tell, no, no, this is how she feels. She said, I feel like I'm wearing a cloak of invisibility. I feel like I just go through life and nobody sees me. That was a real conversation that happened in our concourse last Sunday, and she simply said what millions of people are thinking. And I couldn't stop thinking about the invisible lady all week, because this is what God's been dealing with my heart about since January 1st. He's kind of been saying to me, you, you spent the last 20 years trying to figure out how to be a pastor, but you forgot how to be a Christian. 
as a kingdom person, I wanna learn how to step into that unseenness. I wanna be more like the one who died for me, and I wanna learn as a kingdom person how to see somebody and how to know somebody so I can care about somebody, so I can love them with the love of Jesus. And that's a tall task right now in 2024, just like 12 men feeding 20,000 people on a grassy hillside was a tall task that day with a kid's lunchable, but it happened. Extravagant hospitality. It happened then in an impossible way, and it can still happen today in impossible ways. The disciples took responsibility. They looked to Jesus for the resources. Number two, here's what we have when we step up to show extravagant hospitality. Number two, we have Jesus and his reward. We have Jesus and his reward. You, you know what the disciples were rewarded with for feeding those 20,000 people? Fun like nobody's business. That was the reward. Joy like nobody's business. That was the reward. There they are. The sun is setting. They each got a basket. They're watching people walk out with little fish heads hanging out their pocket, bread falling out their pants legs, you know? I mean, they got it. They got all they can carry. And they're going around 12 baskets picking up everything that's been left. And I just imagine they can't stop laughing, right? This is crazy what they've seen. Listen, there is nothing in this world quite like watching Jesus show up and change somebody's life. I might ought to go to CR on Wednesday night because I'm addicted to that. I'm just gonna tell you. I'm really, I'm really addicted to watching Jesus just show up. You're gonna see some people following the Lord in Believer's Baptism next Sunday. And man, I just sat there weeping as I listened to one of those couples tell me their story. I mean, God radically transforming their lives. It's amazing when you get to be a part of somebody tasting and seeing how good Jesus really is, everything else just pales in comparison for the rest of your life. That's the reward. The joy of the Lord is our reward. So let me tell you what happens when we step up to show the extravagant hospitality of Jesus. Number one, we have Jesus and his resources. Two, we have Jesus and his reward. Three, we have Jesus and his reflection. See, when we slow down, church, slow down, and take the time to stop thinking about you for a minute and really see somebody else, Look longer than you've been looking. Listen more intently than you've been listening. You wanna see them, you wanna know them, you wanna value them, you wanna hear them, you wanna understand them. And when you do that, guess what? You're being a reflection of Jesus in that moment. You're being a reflection of him. He's not a half-hearted king. He doesn't have ADD. He's all in. He's all in. He's not an aloof king. He's not a cool and cold kind of king. No, he's a sit down on the zoysia and eat a fish stick with your kind of king. That's the kind of king that he is. And we, I need to reflect that better. I just need to reflect that better. I do. Verse 14 says that he saw the people. He saw them. Then he had compassion. You're, you're not gonna care about anybody else the way you ought to until you take time to see them, to see them. And we need to remember this. He was there to grieve. He was there to hurt. But he rose up. And rather than complaining, he showed compassion. 
That's my king, Craig. That's my example. I know many of you, I know you are, you're dealing with some serious pain. But what an opportunity. Because when you rise up in your pain to show compassion to somebody else, what a beautiful display of King Jesus you're presenting to somebody. How amazing, how stellar is that? What extravagant hospitality is that? Sue Reeves, Jesse, I can't help but think of your wife, Sue. Started battling cancer when? Five years ago. And I mean pouring into discipling our little children every single Sunday. No let up. Hurting, gut punch, but you'd never know it. Rising up like her king. Fighting back the pain, fighting back the tears, fighting back the questions, pouring truth, pouring love into those children. She, 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 she's been getting on to me for a little while. She says, you've not come over to have Sunday lunch at my house yet. Last Sunday, I'm, getting, I'm slipping. Last Sunday, I thought we were having membership class. My whole week revolved around we're having membership class. I didn't schedule membership interviews for people who are ready for them because I thought we got a membership class. I walked down the hall to start membership class and I walked into an empty room and went, that's next week, I don't have membership class. By that time, most everybody was going. I was standing by Sue's son, Glenn, out there in the concourse. Glenn said, what are you doing? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't usually get free time, but I just got a whole free afternoon. So I guess I gotta go find something to eat. And Miss Sue's son, Glenn, said, you want some home cooking? I said, you better believe I do. And I got to sit under Miss Sue's extravagant hospitality last Sunday. Listen, I know some of you are saying, listen, this pain I carry, Pastor Joel, it's heavy. I know, I know it is, but your pain could be a platform to show the extravagant hospitality of Jesus. Your struggle's real, but your struggle could be a stage to show the extravagant hospitality of Jesus. He saw them, he had compassion for them, and he did something about it. In his hurt and in his pain, he rose up to do something. And I wanna challenge you today, Grace Life, let's embrace this day as our day. Let's embrace this week as our week. That we're not just gonna celebrate he's our savior, but he's our king and he's our example. And we're gonna say, Holy Spirit, help lock me in like a heat-seeking missile to an opportunity to show your extravagant hospitality to somebody else. And I'm not gonna use my stuff as an excuse. I'm not gonna use what's going on in my life because if Jesus didn't use what was going on in his life as an excuse, I don't have an excuse. I wanna rise up in that, God, and I want you to use me. In other words, let your heart feel what somebody else's heart's feeling. For a moment, y'all, we gotta get past what our own heart is feeling and we gotta let the Lord help us feel what somebody else is feeling in their heart. That's what Jesus did, that's what Jesus does. But don't stop there, you gotta take action. Do something in Jesus' name, with Jesus' resources, for Jesus' glory. Find a way to show kingdom of heaven kind of hospitality to some hungry or lonely or unseen person. Yes, this world's mean. Quit joining them. They're mean because they're lonely. If you know Jesus, you ought not be lonely. That's on you. That's nobody's fault but you. You got a friend that sticks closer than her brother. Quit ignoring him. He's there. He's not gonna leave you. He's not gonna forsake you. So you go see these people. You value them. You find a way to show them how we roll in the kingdom of heaven. And you might just get to see pain in somebody's life stop getting 
transmitted and you might get to see Jesus transform it into something amazing. You might see a life change in front of your eyes. There's the disciples. They just handed a little bag of five saltines and two fish sticks or something like that to one person, to another person, to another. Just one. It started with one person, one human contact to one human. And then it went to another, to another, to another. And all four gospel writers said, we're putting it in. Because that's big. That's big. You just show up with the nothing that you have and you trust God to turn that nothing into something. He will. Let somebody know this week you see them. Let somebody know this week they're worth getting to know. Let somebody know this week they're worth loving. God will get the glory. You'll get the, the joy. Yep, you ought to try it. I called that invisible lady this week. Couldn't stand it no more. Called her. Had a great conversation. Us getting to know each other a little bit better. She's funny too, y'all. She sent me a text, I think it was yesterday, that said, hey, don't, don't let the youth get you tomorrow. There's this meme that said, if the pastor does something good at church tomorrow, celebrate Super Bowl and dump Gatorade over his head. So uh, don't do that. So I hope the invisible, she's here. She's in this room right now. The invisible lady's been seen by the pastor while he's up here doing his job right now. And I hope she feels a little less seen today. I hope you all feel a little less unseen. I hope she feels less unseen. I hope everybody feels a little less unseen today. But here's the key to making a difference in a person's life. Before you go to those people, you first gotta go to the Lord. Don't miss verse 17. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Before they did anything else, they went to Jesus. That's where it starts for me and for you. We got to go to Jesus first. Operating, listen to me, Grace Life, operating in a fleshly, benevolent, charitable way in our own flesh, that's not the way. We wanna show the kingdom of heaven, extravagant hospitality in the power and in the name of Jesus. So before we go to anybody else, we need to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you do something extravagant, even through me, to encourage, to challenge, to bless, to uplift another person. Listen, I can't feed 20,000 people with two fish sticks and five saltines, but I know who can. I can't change anybody's life, but I'm gonna go talk to the one that I know can before I go to ask him to use me. It's not your job to feed 5,000 people. It's not your job to change the world. Not my job. Your job is just to bring Jesus whatever you have. And he'll do the heavy lifting. You say, Pastor, what do I have? You have your life. You have your life and everything in it. We're gonna sing a song and you ought not sing it if you don't mean it because the song says, take my life and let it be consecrated. That means set apart. Let it be consecrated, Lord, for thee, for you. It's all for you. Romans 12 says that in light of God's mercy, Let's present ourselves as a living sacrifice, all of us, a living sacrifice, entire life, all of me to the Lord. And then I love what Paul says. He says, this is your reasonable act of worship. Giving Jesus all of you is not extravagant. Him giving all of him for us, that's extravagant. Us giving all we have for him is simply reasonable. It just makes sense. So God, I pray today 
We don't have offering plates in this room anymore, Lord, but I pray today that in our minds, maybe we would just imagine an offering plate right there in front of our chair. And that in just a moment, when we stand to our feet, we would imagine that we are standing in that offering plate, offering ourselves to you to say, God, this is my life. It's not even mine anymore, it's yours. You bought it and you paid for it through your shed blood on the cross. And so God, now this is my five loaves and these are my two fishes right here in this offering plate and I'm asking you, God, to do with it whatever you wanna do with it. I'm asking you to prepare me, God, to be more like you. Help me to see the unseen, to be used of you to make visible what was invisible to spend a little more time hearing people, listening people, knowing people, having compassion, and then trusting God that you are providing the resources so that we can step into that in the name of Jesus. So I wanna invite you to stand, and maybe as you do, you just imagine you're standing in that old offering place saying, God, this is me. This is just the two low, five loaves and two fishes that I am, God, but take it. I don't want my life to be wasted. And God, I'm hurting today, but I trust that you'll be my strength to rise up in the struggle, to rise up in the pain. Who is better qualified to care for somebody struggling and hurting and in pain than somebody else that's struggling and hurting and in pain? So God, here we are. Let's give him all we have. He's worthy.